homies, welcome back to another interview of the week. Well, kind of a special one this week. We have finally managed to snag a time slot with, you know, the Greek god himself, Zeus. It's lovely to have you here, and I'm joined by Mark, as always. Uh, how are we going, gents? Doing well, glad to be here. Yo, yo. <laughs> this has been a long time in the making, but I think this timing is perfect given, you know, the RFC white paper coming out last week. But uh, we'll kind of start off with a few, you know, intro what things you yeah, as we RFC? always do. Yeah, request for comment. Huh? Oh, okay. Trying to shorten things, bro. <laughs> I'm going to kick things off with what do you like and dislike about podcasts in general? Yeah, I think it can be a great medium to communicate conversationally you know obviously in a medium where you know a lot of people can consume it but the downside kind of being the obvious one where like you know the first time you do it it's not an issue but like a lot of the time the questions get very repetitive and just kind of like different person on the other end but the same conversation but i kind of feel like that's not gonna be the case here so that's good okay that's a good thing that's a that's good for us to hear because i think we try to the whole point of agora is to like try and really first like understand the the person behind the anon <laughs> profile pic but then also like trying to ask some questions that like wouldn't normally be asked in like a you know this kind of like legacy media setup where it's kind of like repetitive and boring and the person interviewing doesn't necessarily know that much and it's kind of like these regurgitated questions so we're definitely not looking to do that but i guess before we get into like the white paper over this last six to 12 months it has been an absolute roller coaster ride on both ends. Did you, you know, foresee anything like this playing out when you kind of like, you know, originally come up with the concept of Olympus and like has the, you know, this accelerated adoption itself thrown you in like this constant state of like, I can always be working on X or have you basically found peace amongst the chaos and have you kind of like found the balance? I guess that's the interesting thing to know. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> certainly trying, you know, it's a piece is one of those things, right, that I can strive towards, but never to really uh, achieve, right? Mm-hmm. I would say the whole, whole year has just been kind of like two or three times faster than I thought. So I really thought that, you know, getting to where we are today on like a fundamental level would probably take us like two years plus. And instead, you know, it was like under one. You know, that's cool in a lot of ways. Like, you know, I think that that lends itself to a lot of validation. But at the same time, you know, the issue that comes up is that, you know, there's a lot more at play and that needs to come together than just like underlying mechanisms. And, you know, that kind of, you know, everything has to move faster at that point. And you end up, uh, I think, playing a bit of catch up. So, you know, I've actually been enjoying you know, the past couple of weeks in that, you know, it's it's finally a little quieter where we can just focus on building. You know, I, I think with anything new and exciting, there's a tendency for people to, you know, it's kind of, you know, the classic tech adoption curve of overshoot, undershoot, and then plateau of productivity, you know, so um, my hope is that we're, we're kind of in that plateau at this point where, you know, it's less hype driven and more, you know, fundamental based you know actual value being driven which i I do very strongly believe we will do yeah do you think (laughs) i'm remembering back to the very beginnings of like just was checking my messages before do you remember i was like uh you called like my name twice on the the random number draw (laughs) you were like oh we've already had mark 11 
And then I, like, was trying to get my, um, <laughs> the smaller allocation. And then I, like, went back and forth with you for a while. And you were just like, oh, I don't get it. Like, and I was like, yeah, I'm just trying to get it, man. And then you were like, oh, look, you don't actually have enough dye to make the birch. <laughs> <laughs> no. Yeah, it's pretty funny. So I just want to like ex- old days. <laughs> yeah, explore that a bit, a bit more, like the beginning of Olympus. Do you remember that call you had when everyone was paying like two hundred dollars or something for the AOM, and then you got onto the call and you were like, "This isn't meant to be. <laughs> You're not meant to be like paying that premium for it." And I suppose that's like. A kind of a big problem because like you can't really tell the market what to do has that been super you hard try. for you <laughs> yeah like you don't want to tell uh, people not to buy it because it's like well you know it's not up to you but like yeah from the yeah, beginning I mean, like you expected to trade it at, like a multiple or tell us a little bit about that yeah so i mean that was an interesting situation. I, I think that was a legendary call. I do wonder if there's like a recording of that. I don't think so, but that was <laughs> where the where that gold standard beam came from and everything. You know, I, I think that that was like a unique situation. So it was actually like, you know, I think that there's an easy way to like look at like, oh, you know, it, it consistently traded above those levels. And so that was like a persistent concern. It actually wasn't. So at the time, the issue there was that we had $4 backing per token and none of the system running. So there was no bonds, you know, that, that treasury was static. And so it was like literally a premium of like, I, I think on that call, yeah. <laughs> it was more like four to 700 or, or something. And so, you know, it was literally trading at a hundred, 200 X premium. You know, the, the models, like the expectation was always between one to 10. And so obviously that is a lot higher than 10. I think one to 10 or, or 20. That's like the, those were like the extreme cases. You know, the, the funny thing that happened was, you know, my intent there, I guess, was, you know, we were still very small and like, you know, the, the pool was really small. So, you know, my hope was just like, okay, bring it back down to like lower digits. What actually happened was just we stayed at those higher digits, obviously, but the treasury corrected itself. So I look at the actual premium as you know assets in the treasury versus market cap or you can do like price versus assets per token you know at the time it was like four dollars and then it ended up being you know what like 50 or 100 where it actually normalized itself back to you know we've consistently had a premium of generally like three to six i believe you know with today it's like 0.5 or something you know so that it's definitely a lot lower now but it did normalize itself. It just lowered, normalized itself at a higher price point, essentially. Mm. Like it was also around that time when there was the the kind of like the was that also the liquidity pool like debacle where a whale or a bot sniped like a really like a large percentage of supply because I I just remember I'm not sure uh-huh. that it was covered in like a a Zad which is for those who don't know Zeus after dark we might have to link one or two and I think some movies might have to go back and watch some. But yeah, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that whole like scenario and, and like what what that was like, what that was like kind yeah, of going man. through. Yeah, so that was definitely a crazy week. That was the the cap to the week, right? So we had this wild week of like super high premium that was not expected, and like 
you know, that was because we had that like pre token, but then suddenly there's a pool for it. And there like wasn't any liquidity, but the valuation was very high, you know, like really high volume as people were like moving at, in and out with like, I think that pool was seeing probably like 10 or 100 X its size and volume per day. That was pretty wild. But then the end of that was as we moved to the actual Ohm token. Yeah, so the, the pool got sniped by a bot, which, I mean, probably should have been expected at like a week or two beforehand was Alchemix's launch. And I believe it was the exact same bot that sniped them as well. So that was a whole mess in that, you know, we, we listed it at like 20 and suddenly it's like 400 in a single transaction before anyone knows what happened. There was like a slight mitigation effort, which was <laughs> that they sniped it, but we didn't add the entire liquidity. And then we like zapped in the rest of the ohm side and like dumped on the bot. Um, <laughs> so that was fine. Yeah, they, they did contribute some money in that sense. You know, they, they did us a favor, I guess. They obviously did make money, but the good thing was that they actually got out within the first like two or three days. So they made like a two or a three X and then got out of there, which is good just because, you know, otherwise we would have had that guy hanging over our heads and you know, they probably regret having done so, but I'm glad personally. <laughs> yeah. They would have held like 20% of supply or something. I remember people being on the forum and being like, I mean the discord and them being like, if this guy holds it, like the project's in serious trouble. It's like if Shotter held yes, that... onto his like butterfly to be like <laughs> so much. Yeah, yeah, that's a pretty strong parallel, honestly. Yeah, they didn't. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that yeah, I don't know what we would have done at that point. Because yeah, I mean the the really good thing with that whole period was the distribution of supply was beautiful. I think so. You know, we had this very equal launch event. You know, with this whitelist that, you know, once we did it, everyone started, like, doing this and it just got to, like, you know, you have to jump through all these hoops and, like, you know, get naked on the freeway to get a pre-sale. Yeah, um, the crescendo like, kind of weird just... temple, right? <laughs> yeah. In our case, it was just no one was expecting this. It was just people that, you know, the, the, the Discord had existed for, like, four or six weeks. And it was just if you were here before this was announced, and then, yeah, we had that, like, raffle that, you know, <laughs> I think it's funny that Mark was selected in this, like, random raffle because some people didn't claim theirs. The biggest, like, OG and, like, contributors and stuff were actually in that, like, second wave, which is mm. pretty funny to think about. So that raffle itself, was that the was that the Poo 2? Because it was, like, there's you've got, like, the Pre-Seed, Poo, and then Poo 2. That was Poo 2, which was, like, the old role yeah proof of own <laughs> yes okay that that yeah. makes more sense because i was like what? <laughs> 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 okay that that makes a lot more sense oh yeah so we it was uh you know you're eligible for the pre-sale if you were in the discord before there was any talk of a token essentially um and it was all kind of random babbling and medium posts about what this was meant to be and then, you know, we had, what, it was like, it was like 400 total and like 50 people didn't actually claim theirs. You went they through would, the Discord, right? And were like, have you made a comment that isn't when whitelist? 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, literally like myself and I recruited like two people in the community and we went through every message in the Discord and looked for people who were actually talking beyond, you know, how can I get into the whitelist? So like literally if you had said anything beyond that, actually tried to, you know, have a conversation or contribute something, you were put on this extra list and then we did like a random raffle live on a community call and allocated out the rest of them. I, I thought it was a pretty pretty like egalitarian way to do it. Uh, it was like the best thing that we could really think of at that point. Well, it definitely was. I, I, I mean, it, I think, yeah, I think Ohm had one of the, the best, you know, distributed launches in terms of like community ownership, at least from what I've seen across DeFi. So it, it's definitely impressive. Maybe one thing that we can segue into is like going from, you know, everything being so, so chaotic and then like not expecting, you know, this kind of growth cycle to kick off what has it been like to kind of go from just you know yourself apollo and like you know having this idea implementing it you know getting people like jeff etc to help out on the engineering side and then go from that to you know now being in a like a DAO with 150 to 200 contributors how important do you think the narrative and communications surrounding ohm has been and like how how do you see the i guess the DAO kind of moving moving forward going into like this n next stage yeah so i mean in, in terms of the DAO, you know that's been you know so the goal has always like very much been that this thing is run and operated by the people and so you know that was i think a really important piece of that is that we switched from you know having a team to being a DAO within the first two months and you know i never would have guessed like the number of people that were really interested in, in or contributing that were yeah we have like 150 people now you know contributing in some fashion probably more than that honestly but you know it's definitely it comes with its pain points in that you know i think anyone that's ever like built a company or organization will know that like you know there there's communication problems and you know just challenges that come with scaling and you know as with everything here you know we have done this at such an accelerated rate you know i think that it's actually like been a really good thing you know it's a uh, painful in the short term in senses in that you know i think the biggest thing ends up just being communication pathways and you know how do you go from you know if you have a team of 10 people or less than that it's really easy to be on a first name basis with everyone that's working on the thing, you know, to be constantly in communication with them and everyone is on the same page versus, you know, as you scale that, you know, like the number of connections to, to connect everyone in a group scales exponentially as that group grows. And, and so when mm. that, you know, gets larger and larger, you know, it just gets more difficult. I think it's become there. Mm. It's a blessing in disguise in that it really lends itself to autonomy. And, you know, you can't have everyone in constant communication. And so how do we break these things down in a way where they don't need to be? Mm. You know, it's definitely a learning process, right? And so it doesn't come together all at once. You know, it takes a level of, you know, trial and error. But I think that the outcome that you get from it, like, you know, it, I think that we make progress to, to improve every day. And like, you know, it's a... <laughs> I don't know. I guess it's just a route to get there is, you know, very accelerated, you know, mm -hmm. again, it's all of these things. Yeah. But at least in the sense of, you know, I truly feel that like, 
you know, the, the community owns this thing wholeheartedly. Like, I, I feel like I'm part of the community, but like only part of the community, which I, you know, I've always been the intent. Like, I want to be a contributor on this thing. And, you know, I'm, I'm really glad that other people have kind of stepped up and like, you know, that it kind of takes two to tango in that, right? You know, if sure. no one else steps up to do things, then, you know, it's kind of imposed. So I think that's been great. Yeah. Did you, in your wildest dreams, did you ever think the Dow would grow to this size? Like, what were your expectations for the Dow when you, when it was first kind of getting set up? Definitely not, dude. I mean, I... <laughs> I'm just surprised that people are, are as interested in this uh, as they are. You know, I, I guess it makes sense, but like it's just been awesome in the term or in the sense of like producing awe, <laughs> you know, where like not only is it something that people are interested in investing in, but it's like, you know, something that they want to, to live and breathe and contribute to making a success. You know, where the thing that always gets me is I forget that, like, a lot of you guys have jobs and, like, real lives, you know, like families and stuff. And yet, you know, four plus hours of the day, sometimes more than that, is spent, you know, talking to other people in the Dow and, like, you know, getting stuff done, figuring out how we can make this better and move us forward. You know, I, I would have, like, dreamed of that, but, like, wouldn't have held my breath, you know? Yeah. I think you said like recently, maybe it was on Epicenter that, oh no, it was in your paper. You said you wouldn't be surprised if the Dow is in fact smaller by the end of the year in terms of the amount of contributors. So with that, do you see the Dow as kind of making like sub DAOs to like deal with particular things and like the, the protocol like funds, you know, teams to like go and carry out stuff or are you thinking more like more and more things will sort of be spun out and then Olympus will own a share and sort of people will go execute it, but they'll also have their own incentives for doing that. What's your, yeah. yeah where do you see it at the end of the year? <laughs> yeah. So I, I think it's a mix of both, right? It's like modularization, you know? So a lot of those problems, I think, and this is kind of the direction that it's trending in now, you know, a lot of the problems that, you know, scale and number of people produces can just kind of be solved by like breaking down the org and just you know segmenting into different concerns that you know different groups work with each other but you don't have to deal with like all being under one roof where you know i think that that's kind of where the problems arise versus just like you know like it's creating autonomy you know and mm. so you you have different groups with different domains and some sometimes they overlap in which case those groups work together but if they don't then you don't have to be all that worried about what that other group is doing mm. you know it shouldn't be all that relevant to you and i think that that is really healthy in just like allowing people to focus on some scope not yeah. have to worry about or be bottlenecked or whatever by like you know what what's happening everywhere else because you know it's something that like I don't know, it just seems to the benefit of everyone. Mm. You know, you don't lose much and you just gain a lot. Mm. Kind of stripping away areas where, you know, communication pathways and stuff like that can break down. And then I think yeah. it's also really healthy and just, uh, you know, to the, to the second piece there, lending itself to, you know, things that, you know, Olympus might have a share in, even if it's not tokens, it's just vested interest and success. Where, you know, I think a really like one of the most crucial pieces here, right, is that we have an economy form around us. You know, we're, we're going to be as good as that economy is. And, you know, I, I think that we need to, to just signal 
empowerment to people that want to build that you don't need mm-hmm. to join this organization to to be a part of this you know it shouldn't be that narrow in scope if you want to join that organization by all means please do but if you don't if you just want to go out on your own and do something and what you need is just like support or maybe you don't even need anything like do that as well you know it, like any contributor any contribution should be like looked on well and not like you need to do it within this scope and like through these pathways because I think that that'll just like turn people away, right? Yeah, I think two examples yeah. of that is like the incubator and the grants program. And the grants program launched just like a couple of days ago. And like one of the things is this wallet that's being built with Mover. And it was specifically mm-hmm. something you mentioned on like a call. You were like, we should build like mm-hmm. a Venmo wallet type of thing. And you just didn't even know that it was being built, which is like people wouldn't believe that a founder didn't know sort of everything that was going on in a DAO. So like, I guess like w- were you like, oh, wow, we now have a grants program, like when they were first starting it up and like, was that sort of planned? Were you involved with like planning of that? And then um, are you constantly surprised by <laughs> kind of the things that are happening that you just kind of see happen and you're like, I had no idea that was happening. Is that still something that yeah. happens? Yeah. Dude, I, I love it. Those are my favorite moments. Because, yeah, there's just, you know, I, I tried for a while, but there's too much for one person to keep track of. You know, I don't know if there's anyone that can really keep track of everything that's going on because it's so multifaceted and kind of in every different direction. And like, that, I think that that's the power of having so many people. And especially when you modularize things is that, you know, when there are situations where like, you know, so I try to help anywhere that, you know, people ask me to. And, you know, I'll, when I hear about, find out about or told about things you know if they if i if it seems like i can add value to it i will try to but there is like too much for anyone to do there so it's a kind of situation you know if if one person or group can help another like they're generally going to but you can never really like you know it's not a monolithic organization it's not something where you know yeah. decisions are made down mm. you know it's a very which i think it you know we want like a a free market economy, right? Not like a centrally planned economy. Mm-hmm. And so, like, I love those things because, yeah, I was literally like, you know, it'd be really great if we could do something like this. And then I get a DM that's like, hey, sir, we're on it. Um, <laughs> you know, like... You need, like, a steady stream of, like, info through, like, some bot who just, like, pings you in the DMs. This is going on. Uh-huh. Um, but, yeah, <laughs> to your point, it's, like, that it's really important to have these decentralized working groups, right? But they need, those working groups themselves need to be connected through like a central communication system. So it's not, it's not so much the work, the working groups need to be decentralized. It's, it's like, they just, for things to function properly, there needs to be that, you know, central hub for those working groups to kind of strap into. Um, and then maybe yeah. we can, this is like perfect segue to kind of talk on Olympus Core and like, you know, with some of the internal, kind of reorg and like going on at the moment maybe we can talk about like the olympus core products and for, for context the way that i guess the working groups kind of strap into olympus core and then kind of report back to working groups so everyone's kind of you know remains informed about what's going on yeah so i mean i, I think that that's kind of what the DAO ends up being right is it's not providing infrastructure and like you know i like the the term like messaging or 
central nervous system of the economy, you know, if you want to <laughs> relate it to biology, you know, so that, that is, you know, that should be the organization where, you know, coordination occurs, you know, so in terms of actual things being built, you know, that gets spun out into, you know, either like subgroups and working groups or different projects or whatever. And the DAO seeks to connect them to empower them, to, to help them, you know, achieve what they want to smoothly, efficiently, you know, and as easily and effectively as they, they can. In terms of core, you know, I think that the the focus there is like, you know, the, the Olympus Protocol's infrastructure, you know, it's meant to be built on top of. And so we've had these really cool pushes towards, you know, like Olympus Pro was a really good one that, you know, is continuing to be built out. You know, we can talk about that more if you want later, but like, you know, where those are really good things, but they, they, they kind of are falling on top, you know, same goes for grants or incubator or, you know, any of these other groups where, you know, it, it becomes, I don't think confusing is the word that I'm looking for, but, you know, the, the, like the, the communication pathways start to break down if you put those all under one mm, group. So the, the, yeah. the purpose, you know, is that core seeks to, you know, facilitate the underlying infrastructure of the protocol to improve it, to, mm. you know, make that as conducive to the success of things on top of it as possible. Yeah. You know, and so that extends from, you know, protocol level, like smart contract things to, to like, Mm -hmm. front ends to uh you know coordination and then you know really with the the goal of just like you know building up everything that's on top of it you know this is this base layer that serves as a foundation for everything else exactly so like i think the i mean the, the ways that i kind of see it are like you've got your core mechanics and then maybe what the bond centric approach kind of like would, would kind of fall under that if that ends up becoming you know, like a, a key area that's pursued and then like liquidity, leverage, like cross-chain, treasury, governance. They're probably like the main umbrellas and then you've got the, like, I guess the projects slash products underneath them and then the working groups that strap into that 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 kind of like central nervous system and then report back to different uh, working groups to kind of like, you know, work uh, autonomously but then communicate centrally. So, I mean, very exciting. I think we can get into like maybe all of those projects in like more maybe community-related calls and like again we can have you on in core to talk about the specific products under those categories but why don't we take the kind of latter half of this to to kind of run through the white paper or the rfc as best we can mm, i guess a good place to start is like what is, what is your interpretation of like a tldr what is like the main point with what you're getting at i guess in terms of the paper for for the omis who you may not have read it yet yeah, so I think that we have both the participation and capitalization at this point that we can increase complexity of the staking mechanism in a way that accomplishes the same things while adding additional benefits and assurances for both the network and people participating in the network. Kind of like so, staking plus. So it's an mm, evolution. Yeah, so it's like the combination of like the staking infra changing slightly with the idea of in internal bonds kind of like being the the thing that that kind of supersedes the the staking infrastructure but doesn't replace it right it's just like a yeah. something that becomes more at the forefront of the system gotcha mm -hmm. that makes sense maybe um, just off the top we can kind of zeus this is 
this it has the same effect as like a locking mechanism, right? Well, not exactly the same, obviously, but it achieves the same type of pursuit, which is to have this illiquidity, which will mean that the protocol doesn't have to suffer like a massive drawdown because it can have confidence about what supply is available on the market. And I think the biggest question off the top is sort of <laughs> what do like the three, three Omis do? And like, mm. do you think they'll just be sort of vault infrastructure? And if you're three, three, you just chuck it in there. Like someone will go build that to like get maximized yeah. bonds or what do you, how do you think that sort of plays? Right. So if you look at what staking is for, right, kind of serves two purposes. One is that you are compensating people for the dilution that they would otherwise face with the protocol selling bonds. So if you had, you know, kind of any other network without the staking mechanism, you know, protocol is creating new tokens and running bonds with them. And that just serves as dilution for token holders. So, you know, if you're going to do that in a lighter sense, then, you know, it's something that you can get away with because, like, liquidity mining rewards or, you know, whatever look exactly the same. But, you know, the the game of Olympus is that we kind of do these things at, at a larger scale than anyone else is really doing them. And, and so we kind of need to compensate for that. Otherwise, you know, th- there's no real purpose to to hold them, which is the second reason, which is to keep supply off the market. You know, that allows the protocol to conduct its operations. You know, it needs to kind of get supply that exists out of the way. So if you look at staking, you know, it does that kind of with two ways. You know, one is the rewards compensate for the dilution, but the compounding incentivizes you to keep supply off the market because the longer you're in, kind of the better off you are. Mm. That said, yeah. you know, it's not necessarily the, the best mechanism to do so. I, I think to start, it absolutely is because it's very simple, right? You just click stake and you're done. But, you know, as we grow, you know, we can kind of expand into to mechanisms that might make more sense and be more beneficial there. Um, you know, so the idea behind this is that we can kind of accomplish, you know, we can expand and improve on both of those things. Mm-hmm. So in, in terms of the, the dilution protection, you know, I think that an issue that we ran into, you know, so we spent months and months and months doing communications and education around how you should view these staking rewards, because they're not the same as like farming stable coins right mm-hmm. you know it's paid in the native token and it serves a purpose it's not you know really meant to be looked at as like you know yield farming but you know i think that that's like one of the biggest issues that you know as we got like copied was that you know they looked at it as this is their moat and their like value add is that they just make that number bigger and so they actually encouraged thinking about it the other way around and you know I think it's kind of of the nature of, you know, these uh, perpetual reward structure is, you know, it's kind of up to the to the time frame that you're looking at, mm. you know, what you're going to end up with. You know, so if you're at some rate, you know, because it's compounding, the difference between one month at that rate and one year at that rate or, you know, one decade at that rate is enormous. So, you know, if you transfer some of this activity onto bonds, what you end up with is that you, you can have the same rates. But you know what the time frame it's under is. You know, you have this assurance that between now and sometime in the future, it goes from one to some other number. And so there's no real confusion about that. Um, it doesn't make yeah. a difference. It's just adding an assurance of like, here is what this actually means. Mm. The other one is, is on keeping supply off the market. So, you know, kind of the issue with the the rebasing structure is that it, it's a it's a loose promise, right? It, it's it's a 
non-obligatory. Yes. So, you know, it kind of requires this level of coordination between token holders because, you know, they need to cooperate because, you know, it's voluntary. You know, again, I think that this is necessary, especially early on, because, you know, I think that if the, the community of the token is not willing to coordinate to make it successful, then it's never going to make it. And you might as well figure that out early. You know, I, I think that like, as we, we grow and we can, you know, can afford to add more complexity, we can put ourselves in a situation where we don't really need that coordination as much. You know, it's always going to be beneficial, but it shouldn't be required. And so, you know, the with these, you know, internal bonds, what you do is that you're turning more and more supply into technically a liquid supply. Did you say yeah. illiquid? So yeah. it's a liquid in the sense or for the protocol. So the protocol knows that these tokens are going to be locked from now until whenever they unlock. And that's a guarantee. For the actual holder of them, it's a little different because you have this tokenized note that you can then pass to someone else who knows when it's going to become liquid and they're going to assign some value based on, you know, what's the difference in time between now and then. You get a token when you buy the bond, right? You get this thing back and that says what your specific bond is and what it's worth and when it's going to, like mature like you'll be able to access it right yeah so these tokens would look like you would have um september 2022 mm -hmm. and for every yeah. one of those tokens that you hold you know in september 2022 you'll be able to redeem it for one ohm. so you know for for you you know this is like a, a future dated you know you're essentially just staked until september but if you want to move out of that you just need to find someone else that is willing to, you know, take on that position that they know will expire into, you know, one ohm in September. Mm -hmm. You know, th there's always going to be some value assigned to that because it's not, you know, so we're not imposing that you are like locked. On the mm -hmm. protocol level, it's locked. On the individual level, it's not. But mm -hmm. you're reliant on, you know, third party liquidity for that, which is, you know, so if you look at, <laughs> there's kind of a downside to protocol and liquidity in a sense which is that you can create like like LPs are an important piece of a market and you know in the case of protocol and liquidity like you know the the market almost has it too good because you know that that pro or that liquidity like stays there you know so i i actually pin a lot of like the debt issues that we saw onto this is that you know in any other situation far before debt got to the point that it did liquidity providers would have just removed their liquidity because they are the ones that are providing liquidity for those liquidations, if slash when they occur, and they're not going to want to do that. <laughs> so they're going to pull their liquidity. And in response to that, lenders are going to stop lending or start removing their mm -hmm. liquidity, which will push up the interest rates and force people to, to pay back their loans. And you will never end up in that situation in the first place. In the case of protocol, or protocol and liquidity, what we saw is because, you know, the protocol is such a chad and just like, provides liquidity, you know, until it literally doesn't have money anymore if it needs to, you know, lenders feel more comfortable just like infinitely allowing people to lever far beyond when they should have stopped. And, you know, it actually proved them kind of right in that, you know, we mm -hmm. saw like 200 plus million dollars worth of own liquidated and lenders got mm -hmm. paid back every single cent that they were due. They didn't mm -hmm. take a hit at all. You know, yeah. in any other situation, they probably would have taken a massive hit. But in our case, because of this protocol and liquidity, they did not. You know, the, mm. the protocol made sure that its debts were paid. And um, they were getting so, really I mean, high yeah. fees, right? <laughs> On yeah, top of that. You know, they're, they're earning like 
30% interest. Like, you know, the reason they're earning that much interest is because they should have lost money, you know, <laughs> like that's what you're getting compensated for is the likelihood that you're going to end up insolvent. You know, it's the power of the system that ensured that that did not occur. So, you know, I actually see that as massive validation. You know, mm. it came with a lot of pain, but like, you know, that's incredibly impressive in, in my opinion. Like there is yeah, so well, few markets. There was like, no, just there as, was no external entity that, that came into play and like, you know, bailed out everyone. Right. So yeah, you're yeah. totally right. So in reference, right. So, or as a comparison, a couple weeks ago, we saw a similar amount, um, about $200 million worth of Bitcoin liquidated and it drew down Bitcoin by 20%. Okay. So if the same amount of leverage brings Bitcoin, the fucking biggest coin in the entire industry that is, you know, 15 times older than us, you know, has far more Lindy down 20% versus 80% for us. I consider that absolutely insane. You know, like no one is immune from this. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. it's a systemic issue to, to the industry. You know, we, we can, uh, you know, we can definitely seek to improve the structure though, but I, I truly mm-hmm. view it as like, you know, a miracle that we did not go to zero. Um, you know, that's the reality. Were you, you worried know, about I, that I, I, on the drawdown, the most recent one? Were you like, uh, well, I suppose you were like, there's $500 million in the treasury, so like, what can they really do, right? I, no, I mean, I wasn't worried that it would happen because it couldn't happen. But like, I just kind of thought it sucked because, you know, what you saw was like where it got really nasty was kind of you know the nature of liquidations right is that they only happen once you've already drawn down and you know it was worsened by the fact that a lot of people were looking at you know what around a billion market cap is like oh it'll never get down here and so they just stacked up all of these liquidation points like right on top of each other down there and so what you saw is you know we kind of like tore through like butter um down there because you still have at that point like a hundred million dollars worth of debt or 150 million dollars worth of debt and you know a hundred million dollars liquidated a lot higher you know might draw down 10 per, or 20 percent but down there it draws you down like 70 percent because you have the same nominal debt to repay and it's just like you know it changes the you know if you like the XYK equation becomes a lot more severe at that point, you know? So I just thought that it sucked, you know, because that component, like that last kind of flush out was to be expected, just watching, you know, how the the debt did not really change throughout this, you know, first leg of the drawdown, you know, it's already gone minus 60% and yet there's still like well over nine figures left to be liquidated, you know, and that's got to come from somewhere. You know, there is enough liquidity to do it, but not without pain. Yeah. Maybe drop, we can, Zeus can tell us what would have happened if this new model was in place. Like, what do you think would have happened? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the idea here, right, is, you know, so if you switch onto these bond models, I think think that what we'll see is that there will still still be like SOM or GOM used as collateral, and that's going to be the safest collateral from the point of view of the lender. That is because the protocol's obligations here are to only own. You know, it's not to SOM, it's not to GOM, it doesn't LP for either of those. It's not going to be to any of the bond tokens. It will be for own. And so the, the relationship with the stake tokens that the protocol is facilitating is that it guarantees 
absolute liquidity between those tokens and ohm you know you take no slippage you have infinite liquidity to go from one to the other so you can think of them as the same token and so those are going to be the the best collaterals that lenders feel most comfortable lending against because they can just treat it like ohm and look at all this liquidity that the protocol is providing for that but the thing is that if you do that you're you're going to be compensated a lot less you know your your rewards are going to be lower because you know, especially if that's allowing you to take on more debt, you're adding risk to the network and you're going to be, you know, penalized for that by, you know, higher dilution, essentially. Versus, you know, if someone wants to, you know, use their bond tokens as a collateral, they can. But liquidating those bond tokens is at the whim of third party liquidity providers providing liquidity for that to own. So, you have this relationship of you're reintroducing the third party LP into the equation. So if you go back to like, you know, in any other market, what would have happened is that third party LPs would have pulled their liquidity far before then. We get the same relationship. If lenders are lending too much and people are borrowing too much, the LPs for that bond token are going to look at this and they're going to be like, why am I going to allow this to, like, why am I going to take the fall for these liquidations to occur? No, thank you. And they're going to pull their liquidity out. And suddenly this debt can't be liquidated. And so lenders are going to start to remove their liquidity. And you're going to get into a situation where either, you know, interest rates go up and borrowers will repay their loans or lenders will be left insolvent. And so what lenders need to do is make sure that they're not levering the system to the point that that can occur. You know, it's their responsibility to make sure that their loans get repaid. You know, it's not our responsibility as the market. It's not the borrower's responsibility as the borrower. It's theirs. That, that is how lending works in any other situation. You know, if you write bad loans, you don't get repaid and that's your fault. Do you want to, maybe you can like take us through like even in more detail, like what, like say the price draws down a bit and you're leveraged against your bond and it's like a two year bond. What, what would happen? So the, the benefit of internal, like the, you know, we could do this with the existing infrastructure that we have today. The issue is just going to be that there's not enough supply of the bonds, you know? So if we want these markets to be, you know, liquid with, or with, you know, hundreds of millions or billions of dollars worth of liquidity in them, you know, where they are very wide and expansive markets. You know, we're not going to be able to do that with the current bond structure unless we are selling hundreds of millions or billions of dollars worth of bonds perpetually. Because, you know, it's not not a single point in time thing. So, you know, if you were to try to build up a $100 million liquidity, you know, three months, you got to sell $100 million worth of bonds and then you got to do so again in three months. You know, it's just a large external capital constraint that you know it's going to serve as a bottleneck and so you know doing it with the internal bonds like the amount of liquidity that we can drum up is conceivably infinite relative to the supply of ohm and so you know it ensures that these markets can scale with the rest of the market rather than bottlenecking or suppressing the rest of the market so i think that like there's a reasonable expectation that the closer to expiry the bond is the more liquid it'll be on a secondary market and so you know i, I would expect that the further out on dates you go, probably the lower collateralization you're going to be allowed in terms of what lenders are comfortable with. And so, you know, that's because the lender is taking on a higher risk of illiquidity that, you know, they're not going to want to lend as much per unit of collateral. Because, you know, really like the the dynamic is that they just need to make sure that they can liquidate that collateral to get back their loan. So, you know, instead of, they might not feel comfortable with 76% loan to value or whatever, because Mm -hmm. that's a pretty thin margin. You know, if this secondary market draws down quickly because people have removed liquidity from it, you know, they're not going to be able to execute liquidations 
Um, if it's like 10% loan to value or 20% or, you know, like we, we have the Olympus pool that's only 33% and that pool had no problems. Like it's a lot safer of a proposition that they're going to feel more comfortable with, but that, that's, you know, kind of imposing a, a constraint onto the borrower where, you know, I, I think it'll just lend itself to, uh, you know, more responsible activity on those later dates and, you know, perhaps more, degenerate activity on the, the earlier date. That's so um, cool. There's also the- <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. like, I think the, the, the big benefit that I, like, if I'm, if I'm thinking about um, correctly, it's like the protocol itself takes on, like transfers the risk. You're like, you're like tokenizing the risk and be like, we'll take on the illiquidity risk where in like transferring it from, like the lending borrowing market to the protocol and then a la- and like kind of having that third party and the lending borrowing kind of do their own thing. But the protocol handles the like, we're like, we've got the illiquidity because we make the market and then every the, the other two parties interact like independently from the protocol. So like as a lender, like unless you want to get, take on the risk of getting like almost nothing for like a bond that you're lending against, you kind of have to be satisfied to like for them to like on liquidation just give you the bond and then you have to wait out <laughs> the period before you can go and trade it back into the treasury yeah so i mean a structure like that looks a lot like ruler which works so perfectly in under this structure if you know so we're <laughs> possibly you know noodling with that no you didn't hear from me but <laughs> There's a, you know, so there's kind of like, there is a drawback to this, right? Which is that maybe lenders just don't feel comfortable lending to these at all. And that's not necessarily a good thing, right? Like everything in moderation, right? So what we can do, I I think that this will be a very interesting thing to explore, is if there are protocol mandated kind of health factors for a lending market, where, you know, there's certain criteria of like, you know, perhaps this market has you know a maximum aggregate of like 10 percent loan to value or something and interest rates are you know between some band you know things where it's just like okay this is a healthy market that we're comfortable with in those situations maybe the protocol backstops liquidity for liquidations so it makes sure hey so so long as these things are true um and we feel comfortable with the state of this you know credit market we will make sure that the lenders are able to liquidate their loans. But yeah. if those conditions no longer become true, we will not. And so it places on the lender to enforce that, right? They want the backstop. And so they make sure that those criteria are true. You know, if loan to value gets mm-hmm. too high, then, you know, they start pulling out liquidity. It kicks up interest rates that spurs people to borrow or to repay their loans. And now loan to value comes back into place. Um, mm-hmm. You know, but it, it pushes this responsibility of, hey, you know, if you want... The safety level, like by currently is just the default. You know, if you want that, like you need to make sure that this market is safe. Mm, and then that's where the repo market that you're talking about kind of would come into play, right? Yeah. What's a yeah. repo market? Maybe you can tell them. Yeah, let, yeah, maybe maybe for the <laughs> homies, just a little high, yeah. high level of repo, just because some people might not be tradfi literate. Yeah, so a repo market is like a repurchase market. And essentially, you would take a, a bond you would lend liquidome against it and then have that revert back probably in a short period of time. So you're giving short-term liquidity in ohm that allows this liquidation to occur. So you keep the liquidation off of the uh, secondary market in a time of stress. 
and then you can, you know, liquidate the bond and repay the the ohm debt, you know, in some span of time. So you don't have to have all these things happening immediately at the same time where you cause a lot of issues. Mm. If you fan them out, then you shouldn't have mm. too much of a problem. Yeah. So it's short term liquidity, essentially, that, that mm. allows people to get back to home. Makes sense. So like this would be perfect for like in the in the event where like there's a bond vault and there's some kind of run on like vault deposits, right? Like mm-hmm. something like this would would be perfect in that scenario. Yeah, and I guess like we that, haven't even gotten the like no oh boy. No, no. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe we can quick because I I know it's going to be conscious of your time, obviously, but maybe we can quickly because it's all it's all kind of circle. Like yeah, we're jumping from everything everywhere, but it's all connected. So maybe we can like how the the bond vaults might function in relation to like the the repo markets and then you know everything that you you just alluded to earlier and then we can get into like the the little fun fun part at the end of the podcast yeah yeah so if you're listening to this you might be like what is all of this you know thus far it's been easy i just click stake at three three and that's it um the hell is a repo or a repo market like you know we, we there's <laughs> There's definitely a risk that we don't want to add, which is just that we make the system, uh, you know, incomprehensible, right? That's kind of to the detriment of everyone. You know, what this should produce is that people that want to play in this market themselves can. You know, one other thing is just that, like, to date, the only way to really outperform in the Olympus market is to play OM versus external assets, whereas in this case, you can play just OM versus, you know, future data tokens and kind of keep that within our own ecosystem. But, you know, th- that should be optional, right? Not everyone should have to do that. So you kind of will have two choices. Or I guess you'll have three choices. The one is that you can play the bonds directly. The second is that you can just stake, as you normally do, where playing the bonds directly is probably the highest return, playing or staking directly is probably the lowest. And then a middle ground would be vaults. So what vaults, you know, will probably do is you deposit OM or SOM or GOM or maybe bond tokens, whatever a vault wants to accept. Um they take that and they buy different bonds across different expiries um, where, you know, conceivably they're holding like, well, let's say every different expiry that exists. They might provide liquidity with these and earn, you know, the, the trading fees that accrue. Plus, I, I think it's probably going to make sense for the protocol to, you know, it's going to be paying less. The more supply comes out of staking, goes into bonds, the less it needs to pay to staking. And so it makes sense that it's incentivizing liquidity for, you know, bond token liquidity as well. But, you know, maybe they're providing liquidity for the bond tokens. They should also probably be, you know, if a bond token becomes mispriced where, you know, one of them is too expensive and one of them is too inexpensive, you know, they would sell the expensive one by the inexpensive one. They make some money and they keep the the markets healthy. So, you know, what this would look like for for you is that, you know, if you are feeling a little bit more degen or, you know, not even that, but you just like don't need that absolute guarantee of liquidity back to home you might want to deposit into a vault and that would just be, you know, be pretty much the same process of you just click stake or deposit or whatever. But then that vault is doing all of this, you know, crazy like complexity in the background for you. You know, I think a really good parallel mm-hmm. is just like, you know, you could go and try to farm everywhere on some chain or you could just deposit into urine and urine does that for you. And it just, mm-hmm. you know, leverages economies of scale to do so more effectively than you might be able to unless you're like very sophisticated and good at running those strategies. Yourself. Yeah, Brian will be in there, no doubt. There's a couple of uh-huh. <laughs> a couple of projects building stuff with the expectation of this already. So like 
Uh, I know we had Max from Fiat Dow on recently and they want to make this kind of uh, synthetic asset which you can mint against your like future dated bonds. Uh, and that's just not mm-hmm. for Olympus. It's like a couple of things. Um, and then there's this project Hermes, which wants to be like a bond market as well. Are you like, mm-hmm. are you seeing like people... I mean, that's a pretty big endorsement, right? That there are already projects sort of building, getting ready for this. Are you like, are you super hyped that like people are kind of, you know, chucking in their lot and saying this is going to be a big along, like with Olympus thinking it's so going to be big? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if we've like stated this, but you know, the, the intent is that we're not like implementing this for like a year or more. And a big part of that is that we want these things to be able to, you know, people should be able to prepare so that, you know, if slash when this goes live, we have vaults ready to go that have, you know, been preparing and, you know, optimizing strategies. And, you know, we've been, you know, building models that, you know, they can figure out how they want this thing to work for them so that they can optimize, you know, to either, you know, I think that there's going to be different vaults with different purposes, right? So some of them might be seeking the highest return and they care a little less about liquidity. And then some of them might be trying to optimize for the most liquidity, but they care a little bit less about returns. Because, you know, the thing that I actually forgot about there is that if you deposit into a vault, the risk that you're running versus just like staking and the reason that you're probably going to earn more is that in a, or in a scenario where everyone tries to unstake from this vault, in staking, everyone can do it. In this case, you know, the vault probably only has a certain portion of its deposits in like liquid at ohm forms. So like SOM or, you know, ohm side of liquidity pairs. So there is a situation in which they, you know, either can't give you anything or they need to give you bond tokens instead of ohm or, or whatever, you know. And so the, the repo market step in there and, you know, it could alleviate that by allowing, you know, short-term loans that allow uh, withdrawals from that. But, you know, with that, like, you know, the, there's different things to optimize for. So, you know, some of them might just like do very short-term bonds. So they're always liquid and they, you know, don't have to worry about those kind of runs whereas some of them might be like okay you're actually gonna have to signal to us two weeks in advance or a month in advance that you want to withdraw because we're going to hold all of these positions mm-hmm. in long dated bonds and you know we need time you know the, the protocol is going to need time to convert those into liquid positions and you know that's just the trade-off that depositors make it's like what do i care about the most here yeah like getting a higher interest rate yeah. from a bank if you lock it in for like 12 months or whatever right you said it, I mean. <laughs> I think well, I think the big benefit is right the protocol knows exactly when supply is li- liquid or liquid, right? So so like the, mm-hmm. the protocol focuses can focus on on, on that and therefore like c- can do more to grow the treasury which actually benefits like everyone who's participating, right? And then these like because the bonders are driving up these interest rates, like they're creating the market through the activity and then it, there's just yeah there's like yeah. so many things that we need to like get into at a later date like through a bunch of other educational materials but it's overall yeah. it's just like super exciting and and the one thing that i actually wanted before you go mark how do you differentiate from oh this is a great idea versus like a half-baked idea like how do you be like okay well this actually makes a lot of sense for this scenario i'm going to pursue this how does that how does that happen within uh, up at mount olympus explain to us well, okay, in this case, this is not, like, all that new. Like, I, I will confess, okay, like, this is one of, like, two slash three main things where, like, I, I was concerned a while back 
that we were going to get forked as we did and didn't really want to like lay out all the cards in that. Like, I really feel like they discredited us just by like taking the underlying mechanisms and making it look like that's all that this is. And, you know, when they do poorly, if the the prevailing sentiment is that this is all that this is, you know, that that harms us as well. And so, you know, I think that if all these things had been out there, you know, they probably would have co-opted them as well. So I'll, I'll just throw out that, like, it's kind of been the intent. And like, I've, I have and did and have felt like super weird about that. But it does seem like it was. A, like, um, and finally, it will no longer be the case. But. Because it's happening now, right, already, (laughs) kind of in a way. So there's like 30-day bonds the policy team are putting out, which is Mm -hmm. kind of, kind of, I mean, essentially, like, if, if, if someone came along and someone provided liquidity, I mean, that this would already be happening, right? I mean, but only at a 30-day. It's more about building the mechanisms and the education around it that the paper is kind of. Yeah laying out the the future and the vision is that right yeah uh, let me just add like one more thing on the protocol side right like this is a lot of this complexity doesn't exist for the protocol this is all like you know how does the market cope with these things but for the protocol it's like super simple i think you know it knows exactly when supply is a liquid and when it becomes less liquid or uh becomes liquid it can control the rate at which it becomes a liquid you know, on that level, it's pretty simple. But, you know, one other place that this really helps the protocol is, you know, as we have tried to do those like 14 or 30 day bonds, um, you know, as the policy group has done so, they've kind of run into an issue of, you know, th- there's a smaller group of participants that run bonds. And that's kind of just to be expected. But when you have longer lockups, it, it forces them into a position where, you know, they actually just don't have like the dry powder to continue to run them and so discounts run higher you know what this does is that we have well-regulated secondary markets that you know are primarily populated by these internal bonds so a lot of the supply is coming from you know people bonding home for future home but it also comes from people you know bonding die or lp or whatever where it should decrease the uh, the discounts that the protocol has to pay significantly by making that a secondary market you know you you create a situation in which like you know my expectation is actually that Real people very rarely, if ever, interact with the primary market beyond this. So the primary market being, you know, direct to the protocol. Instead, what you're going to see is, you know, in a scenario where the secondary market is more discounted than the primary market, you know, you're just going to go to the secondary market. And then over time, you know, the primary market discount is falling and falling and falling. The moment that the primary is more discounted than the secondary, a bot can just come in and buy the primary, sell into the secondary, and take an arbitrage spread. So the primary mm. actually just becomes like a, an arb source that is always mm. getting the best discount as dictated by the market. So it's right now it's this time-based game. It's like people need to be in the right place at the right time and have the right size versus here. It's just, you know, market is setting some rate, you know, perpetually, and then bond discounts are just going to be reflected by that on the primary market. So the protocol should get far far better execution where we can push mm. these things out into to months and years in a way that's economically viable because we have the infrastructure to support it mm. if we're talking about um, execution it sounds very similar to like you know ethereum being this execution layer and then all the l2 being being the actual space where everyone trades on and, and like but everything yeah. gets routed to ethereum is the execution layer whereas it like, sounds like that's similar 
for like the primary mm-hmm. secondary market relationship. Yeah, very interesting. What we could even do, what we could even do is that you're having a, you know, the primary market exists on Ethereum and the secondary markets exist on a layer two. And it's just, you mm. know, the ARB occurs where they buy on the primary on ETH, they bridge it over and they sell it onto the secondary on the layer two where people don't have to interact on ETH anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that is Yo. absolutely a possibility. That's to answer the previous yeah. question, though, I'm sorry. I, I got a little sidetracked. I think just time is like, you know, we, we should just be spending, you know, slowing down a little bit more. I think that we're gifted right mm-hmm. now and we shouldn't like give it back up with, you yeah. know, with a little bit more quiet where we can just pace ourselves. You know, I, I would really like mm-hmm. to start acting like, you know, one of the, like Ethereum or Bitcoin does where, you know, I, like the, the thing that I keep paralleling this to in my mind is like EIP 1559 because, you know, it's a recent thing that occurred. That actually was proposed back in 2018. You know, it's something that the Ethereum mm. community spent a very long time formulating on. You know, they made sure that every, you know, detail when it comes to not just like implementation, but as well, you know, what are the implications of this? How is this going to change functionality? What's this going to do to people participating in the network? Is this going to help us? You know, all, all of these different questions, you know, they spent an abundant amount of time figuring them out. You know, I would say that that's kind of, like the best thing is just like slow down, take a deep breath and like do the work, you know? Yeah. So you're super chill. Yeah, that, <laughs> <laughs> You know, we don't have to be running at max speed all the time. <laughs> yeah. Mm, I'm just thinking yeah. like if a Bitcoiner, if they could get like a discount today for buying Bitcoin and they're like, oh, I love Bitcoin so much, you know, they're these, Lots of people, actors in that system, who'd be if they could get like a five percent discount on their like Bitcoin buy, they'd be like, fine, lock me up for five years. I don't mind. Like, it's just such a, mm-hmm. it's such a like a good way for participants mm. who are long term aligned to be really getting yeah. getting a like suitable advantage from what they're providing to mm. the protocol. Yeah, yeah. The the market yeah. drives the rates, right? So the power. It's very cool. I think we've like basically hit everything, but the yield curves specifically. So why don't we kind of quickly get into how you know the illiquidity and the being being liquid kind of affects the interest rate uh, rates and maybe, like walk us through like a a, a scenario for for Naomi who's like what's a what's a yield curve? How do I yeah maybe do I yeah. jump on my yield curve? <laughs> Tell us what it is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So a yield curve is kind of like a visualization of these bond yields over time. Right. So it, it essentially serves as a guide for what these bonds should be priced at. You know, that's the key is that there needs to be some kind of a benchmark that you can compute of where this should be priced so that people can step in and they can arbitrage the markets to ensure that they're priced that way. You know, the, the way that that is probably going to work is like, let's do an example. So, you know, the important thing is what staking yields. So staking doesn't go away and it actually like kind of increases importance in that that's going to be your like baseline rate of return. So if you have an option of holding a bond or being in staking at the same yield for the same amount of time, you're going to choose to be in staking because in staking, you have a guarantee of liquidity in bonds. You only have an expectation of or of liquidity. And so, you know, intuitively bonds should yield more than staking, but let's assume that staking will yield the same amount you know, for the next two years, that rate will not change. Then you can project, okay, in three months from now, staking will have yielded this. 
in six months, staking will have yielded this, nine months, 12 months, you know, whatever, go out. And you can draw a curve of, you know, what the minimum pricing on these bonds should be. So this is the minimum that they should yield. And then, you know, there's probably some premium that the market places on that. You know, this is the the unknown piece. We're going to have to kind of find out what that premium looks like. But intuitively, that premium is going to increase as you go further out on the curve. And so you should, you know, you're going to create this curve of yields where, you know, let's say like three month yields, you know, for, for simplicity, like 100%. So staking is yielding on an annualized basis, like 95%. And then a three month yields 100%. And a six month yields 106%. And then a, a 12 month yields, you know, 120%. And, you know, they're kind of increasing as you go further out because you're taking on more liquidity risk the further out you go. Mm-hmm. So everything yeah. should line up where, like, if, if you were to be in a three month bond and that expires and then you roll it into another three month bond, that should yield you roughly, but slightly less than just having bought a six month bond in the first place. And then the same goes for, you know, being in a six month until it expires and rolling it over. That should be equal to slash slightly less than a 12 month bond if you just started there. Um, where, you know, you're, you're compensating people for, you know, taking on additional illiquidity. Um, but you're keeping things within reasonable, um, distances of each other and, you know, kind of producing these healthy markets where you don't end up with like, you know, uh, a three month yields like a hundred percent, but a 12 month yields like 2000% because, you know, like that could exist with like only the primary markets right now, because if you didn't have people at a single point in time to be bidding up that 12 month, you could end up in that situation. It just doesn't make sense. It's inefficient and harmful mm. protocol. Mm. It'd be, it'd be really, I'll let you finish your point after, but it really, I'd really recommend Omis to go back and read, I think it was OIP7, or at least it was a single digit, but it was like the whole discussion surrounding locking and then come back, like read all the, like everything on the forum there, come back, read the yield curve section specifically, and then kind of see the way that like that initial idea for locking has kind of transferred over here. And this has like, it is essentially just like a, a, a more like fleshed out efficient version of like that initial discussion so if people want to kind of draw you know how we've transitioned in terms of like ideas definitely recommend going back and reading that but yeah i'll let you finish your point too sorry i was just gonna say you know that there should be a lot of fun when it comes to uh you know essentially the market is pricing in expectations of future yield so if you have a situation where okay what if the staking reward rate is going to decrease in six months then you know it, it should work as described the next six months but when you start going further on the curve there the curve should actually invert a bit because now if you're in staking you're actually going to earn less beyond that point and so bonds should start to reflect that and i just think that that's going to be like at minimum fascinating to see if we do this where you know the first times well one i think is really good that requires that any change that staking reward rate is projected and like you know put in place well in advance and that the market needs time to price that in. And so, you know, just better assurances for everyone. Mm. But two, just like, you know, how that functions, uh, I think it's going to be awesome because, you know, it'll just open up opportunity. The first time might be a little clunky, but, you know, some people are probably going to do very well for themselves, re-regulating the market. And then as time goes on, you know, lessons will be learned, figure out how it works and, you know, conceivably, you know, the further out into the future you go, 
the more well-regulated these markets run until you have this mm. very efficient, like, you know, efficiently pricing and illiquidity risk and expectations of future yield into the future. Mm. That makes total sense. I think just for Omi to reiterate, staking is not going away. So you're going to have your staking, you're going to have yeah. your bond vaults, and then you're going to have what we're talking about here is the high-level kind of, I, I, I get this, I know the risks associated, I'm going to jump into that option. So you have those kind of three options, am I right? For, for just for, for people who are trying to like condense the actions. Like I think that's kind of important for people to like hear and listen and be like, okay, the main thing that I understand very well is not changing anytime soon, but there's going to be these, uh, these, these the, a bunch of other actions that I can take and over time I'll start to learn more about them. Yeah, it's optionality. And I think a really good thing is, you know, these vault protocols should be incentivized essentially, you know, because they want people to deposit with them to explain, you know, how these bond markets work, how they operate in them. And, you know, not even like these high level things, but beyond that, why you should go to them instead of this other guy that's giving the same explanations, but trying to, you know, show them on them instead of you know, where, you know, I think that a lot of that educational burden will actually like like it should be a lot more understandable like you know mm. <laughs> like you know you'll have a lot of different sources that are you know trying to educate on these things because it's in their best interest mm. as well yeah before i jump into the the next little segment before we round things up it's called no attention spend no problem where it's like i've run through like a, a phrase or like a one word thing and you just like fire back the first thing that comes off the top of your mind so you know it might be food and then you give me what food is to you obviously that we're not going to do food but just as an example it's just like the, f the first thing that comes into your mind so like try and let your brain kind of take it wherever don't like think about it too much oh boy all right I'll try. i know all right we'll try <laughs> internal versus external bonds expansion <laughs> uh staking not going away <laughs> yield curve <laughs> network effects olympus collaboration DAO. Liquidity. Protocol owned. Future. Bright. Ohm. Currency. Yeah, perfect. That's exactly what I wanted to hear. All right. <laughs> um, better, yeah. <laughs> really appreciate you trying to like jump into that new random game that I spun up. But my final question, Mark and input here, like kind of throw his to you, but you know, how important is narrative as a currency? Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'll leak a little alpha. You know, I, I think that they don't like the term narrative all that much and that it's like used a lot, I guess. But, you know, I think that it's super important in that with any monetary asset, it really just comes down to the value that people place in it. You know, this is the case for, for Bitcoin or any currency out there. It's the case for any precious metal. You know, it really just comes down, you know, we as humans figured out a long time ago, that it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to transact with actual valuable things at their real value because you're just going to waste a bunch of value as people hold it as money. So instead, you take something that has less or no value, you imbue it with a bunch of value, and then you use that to transact to credit. So that way, you're not wasting things in the economy. But you know that comes down to you know you're you're inherently placing value, more value on something than it has, and people need to be confident that it should be valued like that. And so, you know, like the narratives that spin around these things are incredibly important, you know, because really all, all narratives are is, you know, the way that we communicate as different people, you know, and especially in this context, you know, communicating why this thing is good to, you know, serve as a money or a currency. I think that that's going to 
become increasingly important. You know, <laughs> one other thing that this whole system does, right, is, you know, th- there's this interesting relationship of like, you know, the way that I've always looked at 3-3 kind of, you know, I think that there's one way to look at it, which is cooperation between people. You know, I kind of look at it as cooperation with the protocol. You're aligning yourself with the protocol. You're getting out of its way. You're taking supply off the market and you're allowing it to do what it wants to do. But not everyone is going to do that. So, you know, you actually have something of an adversarial relationship between the token holders and the protocol. You know, the protocol is interested in its own growth and success. And token holders are, you know, most likely interested in their own growth and success. Those things can be aligned. They aren't necessarily aligned. Ohm is like a liability for the protocol. So what this does is that you take a bunch of supply and you turn it into a liquid supply. So now those liabilities are decreased. And it's like <laughs> kind of a classic divide and conquer. If you're looking at it from the protocol's perspective, that, you know, the protocol gets to call the shots. And so, you know, I think that there's going to, like, there will be a concept of like, you know, not just treasury assets to market cap or to total supply, but treasury assets to liquid supply, which is the one that like actually matters at the end of the day, mm-hmm. where you're making supply liquid. Now, you know, the the firepower that the protocol has is, far more potent so you know the way that this circles back to narrative is that if you have the protocol in this position of you know you, you like i think that it is very likely that the treasury actually over collateralizes liquid supply mm. um, under this system so it has more assets than the amount of ohm that if every single token were to go into the pool you know it'd be able to mm. you know defeat that probably with ease where you know mm-hmm. the way that this circles back to narrative is that you're, in, you're if you're in this situation where you know whatever the protocol wants it's gonna get communications from the protocol about what it's gonna do are going to be responded to by the market as okay i'll do them for you because you know you mm-hmm. this is forward guidance is the concept mm-hmm. communicate expectations to the market the market has the option to carry that out itself and take a spread in doing so and if it doesn't the protocol does it itself either way it's gonna happen mm-hmm. Do you want to make money while this happens or do you want to fight against it? That, that's the dynamic. You know, I think that is kind of the, that's the whole thing here. You know, like that's the reason that we needed to bootstrap this, you know, that, that you need some weight placed behind that. I think that in the next year, that's what we're going to move into. I think it's pretty cool. <laughs> like the treasury value, like kind of trending, trending up like to liquid supply value being, being like a key thing that, that is like a indicator of like growth really but like kind of like regulated growth by the product because the idea is like mm-hmm. yeah supply has been distributed out to the omis and now the protocol is like well that was very uh, expensive we can do that a better way where the protocol looks after the omis by segmenting the, the the risk whilst the omis can still benefit and then by by the omis doing everything that they do it creates the market but the protocol regulates the market really and then by by taking on more risk as a as a protocol in general because it knows that it has the underlying value to take on the risk then you have this like very robust system and we and like you know without this new kind of you know bond centric approach being in place the protocol has still managed to to function perfectly as a v1 system which is amazing so yeah. again i'm also super excited we also really appreciate you coming on uh, we know that you're extremely busy but we wanted to try and give this you know a, a little recap for the omis we really appreciate you you know finding the time to do this praise yeah, Zeus. Glad I finally got on here. 
DM, sir. I, I think uh, we, we know we know where to find Zeus on Twitter, guys. At Ohm Zeus, I don't need to I don't need to link anything else. I think we all know where to find everything. And without further ado, I'll let let you guys kind of have some closing thoughts. But I think that's it for us. Yeah, thanks, Zeus. Been a long time coming, getting you on the podcast. It was our dream since day one. So I'm very glad to have made it. Fucking <laughs> go. I'm glad we waited, you know, rather than, uh, it could have been like first episode. I know we were talking about it, but I think this is better. Yeah. I mean, oh, just yeah, I think... focusing on the community, it's like way more like Olympus brand, you know, we're not, the core team's cool and all, but like, we're all about the Omis, you know? <laughs> That's why I love Agora, man. Actually, I, I listened to almost every episode. I'm a big fan of you guys. Hey, yo. No, no, we, we appreciate we appreciate everything that yourself and the Omis are, are doing. Almost 100k strong, turning into like a mini city. So, very exciting. <laughs> All right, without uh, further ado, thank you, Omis, for joining. We'll catch you, catch you next week. Catch you soon, Omis. See you guys. Yeah. <laughs>